0: Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. It's towards the back of your Bible in the New Testament, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will be able to, uh, you'll be able to have the, the words on the screen, some of the verses on the screen, but it's always good to have something that you can refer to on your own. You also should have, when you came in, this little thing that says Connection Group Homework, and it's a new thing that we're doing, and you'll see it in your little bulletin that you get, and what it'll have is some questions that, as we go to Connection Groups, Throughout the week, you will be able to refer to these things, and this is what we will be talking about. So you don't have to be afraid. Um, You know, what are we going to talk about when we go to connection groups? They're going to ask me all these hard questions. You show up here, you will know exactly what is being discussed. So June 28, 2017, Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah wrote an article in Time magazine entitled, Why I, or I am recommitting to civility. He referenced several events that were happening at the period of time the article was written. One of them was when a political protest at Cal Berkeley was happening. It turned violent. And here are college students in this nice, peaceful, happy, utopian Bay Area university who all of a sudden were attacking each other because of politics. Shortly after that, and what was really kind of grossly underreported when you really think about it, was the assassination attempt of many of our U.S. congressmen. Republican Congressman Stephen uh, Scalise was shot playing baseball in a D.C. suburb with a bunch of his fellow congressmen and he almost died. He was in the hospital, got out, went back in because of more complications and, and was just recently released. And we almost like forgot. We almost had a, a sitting member of Congress murdered. And it just kind of happened. And he goes on and to, to talk about this. And he says that something has been lost in our age. And the word is civility. And he says this. Whether in town halls, casual conversations with neighbors, or posts on social media, we must likewise refrain from dehumanizing, demeaning, or unfairly disparaging the other side. And we must resist the impulse to frame every tiny policy disagreement as a zero-sum struggle for the soul of the country. We must restore sense, decency, and proportion to our political speech. Finally, he admits his own shortcomings in this area and, and in the article recommits to how he is going to interact with other people that he knows to restore Civility. And of course, this incivility continued throughout the summer, in, in the, obviously what happened with the, the protest at Charlottesville and the violence that ensued from that. But all of it really is a symptom of a deeper problem. And Hatch identified it as our failure to see what he called the quote unquote common humanity in each of us. That we're failing to see the common humanity in each of us, especially those with whom we disagree. And so it's into this societal mess that we are going to let God's word speak to us today because the question for us is what do we do in a society that is becoming more and more uncivil, or at least that's how it seems, where there's a cruelty and a meanness that is broadcast to the masses through social media? And where words and actions get taken out of context and stretched to paint the other person in the worst possible negative light. And it doesn't matter if it's even true because it should be, even if it's not, right? Well, it should be. That's what they meant to say. And so what do we do? We can't control the actions of the world, but we can control our own actions. And we can take our cues from what we can see in scripture, and so this is what it says in Colossians chapter three. It says, if then you've been raised with Christ, if if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, Then you will also appear with him in glory. Now when you look at that passage, you might say, what does that have to do with restoring civility? And so it's my task today to help us on this three-week journey we're going to take throughout this chapter, because I think this chapter in particular can speak volumes to us, so we won't hit all of it today, but we'll begin to get the concepts of of how we can begin to see differently about this issue and become people who can be part of the solution even if we are relatively low in in number in terms of the amount of people who think this way. And so the question that we want to ask is, how did our nation or our culture get to a place of so much division and anger and separation, which now is resulting in the dehumanization of people all around us? If you want to get to the bottom of that, we, we, we have to really ask ourselves that question. Where did this begin? Is it it because of the political system? Is it because of the media? Is it because of social media? Is it because of technology? Is it because of just the way people feel like they can speak to each other? And I think it's actually much, much deeper than that. In fact, I think the core, if we're honest, where we start, how we diagnose the problem is we have to look inside ourselves at the virus or the condition, the universal problem that we have all been born into, which is simply called sin. It's sin. Sin is a disorder. It's a fatal condition. It's a terminal disease. It's a viral infection that is universal. White people have it. Black people have it. Hispanic people have it. Asian people have it. Rich people. Poor people. Young and old. Republicans and Democrats. Athletes and nerds. Drummers. That was supposed to be kind of funny. Um, drummers, bass players, everybody has this condition called sin. And it's the one fact, maybe one of the only common denominators that we all share. The great um, philosopher 100 years ago, G.K. Chesterton, was asked by a newspaper, I think it was the Times of London, he was asked to respond, what is wrong with the world? And in his famous reply, He wrote back simply these words, dear sirs, I am. What is wrong with the world? It's me. Starts with me. I'm what's wrong. And so sin at its core, what does it mean? It's missing the mark. It's moral insufficiency. It's the inability to do the will of God. It is, it is maybe having wonderful intentions, but failing miserably to execute them. The knowledge of what is right, but the rebellious heart of doing the opposite. And among all of the consequences of sin, perhaps the most acute one is that of isolation. Isolation. In fact, you could say that what's contributing to our, to our incivility is the fact that sin always isolates. Sin drives us away from each other, and it ruins every healthy and good relationship we have in our life. And we can go back to the very beginning of the story of Adam and Eve, which is so brilliant and profound. Because when Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden, what is the very first thing they do? They hide. They hide. They hide. And God pursues them because that's what God always does. He's always pursuing us. That's the whole Old Testament. If you want to know, what what is the whole Old Testament about? God pursues us. That's it. That's three words. If you want to understand the whole Old Testament, God pursues us. So he pursues them in the garden, and and he says, hey, what's the deal? And he asks Adam. He says, you're hiding. He says, hey, did you eat from the fruit that I told you not to eat? And Adam's response is so amazing. He goes, the woman— that you put here with me. She gave me some of it. No, no, I hate it. Right? And in one sentence, in one sentence, he alienates himself from every relationship that he has in his whole life. He throws his wife under the bus and he blames God for giving her to him. I never asked for her, man, I was a bachelor, I was a happy guy, I didn't need this woman, it was your fault, you brought her to me, she, she led me astray sin isolates. We hide. Of course, Adam and Eve, their their son did the same thing. Cain brings an offering to God. Abel brings an offering to God. God likes Abel's offering because it was the first fruits. It was the best that he had. Cain just gathered some stuff together and gave it to God. God's like, I don't like that. So Cain gets mad at Abel. Cain becomes a victim Cain is a victim now because he didn't do as good of a job as Abel. And so he feels like a victim. So he justifies himself and he murders his brother Abel. Why? Because I'm a victim. And sin isolates, it drives you away. It drives you away. And the first thing he does is he runs as far as he can. And so this is what happens. C.S. Lewis, in his book of the great divorce, talks about how hell, and he describes hell in kind of a, in kind of a it's, it's not supposed to be tr- in a sense true, it's supposed to be his d- understanding of, of what it would be like, and he talks about hell as this gray town where people move further and further apart from one another, so they're miles away, so you have to walk for hours and hours and hours before you even see someone else, and that's the characterization of hell, it's separation. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't connect with people. Certainly groups like the, the KKK or, or the mafia or street gangs or even illicit relationships like adulterous affairs, those, those have connections. People connect with each other, each other, but those connections are false. They bring out the worst in you. They may have a, a sense of camaraderie because we're together, but, they, but they're wrapped around the wrong reasons and they're for the wrong purposes and there's not real community. They destroy one another in the process even though for a brief period of time they may feel that connection. They only result in further isolation from all that is good for them. Now this is important because unless we understand the problem, we'll apply the wrong solutions. If we don't understand the disease, we'll never go after the get, and get the right cure So we have to understand the incivility we see in our society is the the social media and the media and politics, those are symptoms of a deeper problem that we have. And we have to step back and look at the universal condition. The universal condition that wants wants me to set myself above you and wants me to justify myself and put you down and do everything I can to get within my own little group so I can stay away from and blame you for what really lies inside me. So if sin is the problem, what is the solution? Well, our solution, and I challenge anyone to offer a better one, is simply the gospel. Because the gospel is the story of Jesus. How he has come to rescue all of us, Democrat, Republican, white, black, male, female, rich, poor, not from each other, but from ourselves. We all got the same problem, baby. And guess what? We all have the same solution. We all have the same cure. But it's not from you. My problem, my ultimate problem is not you. My ultimate problem is me. And only Jesus can solve that. So when we look again, if then you've been raised with Christ, that means, here's the implication. If you see, if then you've been raised with Christ, that means at one point you were not raised with Christ, right? You were dead. You were broken. You were lost. But somewhere along the way, you got to a place where you came to terms with your own sin, with your own insufficiency, where you got a close-up picture of your own rottenness, and and that your moral shortcomings have not only polluted you, but polluted the people around you. And you're struck by that, right? You see it for what it really is. And you get to a place where where you honestly believe that, and instead of being outraged at the world, you become outraged with yourself. And so the natural response to that is when you see yourself for who you really are, it's it's humility. You go, man, I, I I didn't realize how arrogant I'd become, how selfish I'd become. And all humility is, is not thinking of yourself lower than you should or higher than you should. It's thinking of yourself accurately. That's all humility is. Humility is now finally receiving an accurate picture of where you stand, that you are not God, that you don't deserve everything. You're not really a victim, but that you're someone desperately in need of grace. And you cannot help when you receive grace to have a sense of humility, and then the subsequent feeling that you have or sense that you have or reality that you have is gratitude. And those two things are absolutely essential, humility and gratitude. And this is so important because if we're ever going to restore any kind of civility in society, it's got to start where people do not walk around feeling like the world owes them. And the only way to realize that the world doesn't owe you is when you look in the mirror, see your own moral insufficiency, see your own sin, see your own failure to meet God's standard and how that has not only resulted in your own destruction but in the hurt and pain caused in other people's lives and you throw yourself at the mercy of God and you realize when you do that, God's mercy is there and more than sufficient a hundred billion times as we sang to cover over your sin. And the result is Humility and gratitude that you've been rescued. That God has valued me. And so humility and gratitude catalyze civility. Humility and gratitude is the secret sauce of civility. It's what the ingredients are necessary. Without those two things, you will not have a civil society. Because I will always see you as owing me something and you'll pay dearly for that. So what grace does, where sin always isolates and drives me into hiding, grace pulls me out of the shadows and it restores and reunifies and redeems me. Because despite what I've done, I'm loved and I'm cared for and I'm declared innocent as a child of God because of the blood of Jesus. And that that changes everything for me. God drives me out from behind my hiding place and drives me towards people. Grace always drives you towards others, not away. It drives you towards, especially people you've had run-ins with, especially people you haven't forgiven, especially people that you've run crossways with. Because you go, wait a second, I've been forgiven by God. I I, I just naturally want to forgive that person. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. So what does that mean? You know, I've always, because I've read this passage like a million times. Set your mind on things above. Does that mean I just kind of like mentally supposed to like think about heaven and angels and like, you know, harps and clouds and like not think about anything on earth? Actually, it's the exact opposite. Because what he's going to say, the way he's going to explain or extrapolate on that concept of setting your mind on things above, the the, the practical examples of that, listen, this is very important. Everything he's going to talk about, about what it means, set your mind on things above, has to do with our human relationships. You know you are setting your mind on things above. You know you are no longer dealing with the things of earth and that you have fundamentally been transformed in your life and you've been raised with Christ as you behave differently towards your fellow man. And if you read the chapter, it's all about that. Put to death your anger and your malice, and your rage. Stop lying to each other. Stop stop taking advantage of each other sexually. You're doing all these things. No longer do these things. You set your minds on things above. But it's, it's very, very behavioral. It's not just this mental esoteric, you know. It has, it has impact, ripple effects around everyone in your life. It is all about how I dignify, elevate, care for, and humanize every single person around me. So my spirituality is not just some esoteric thing that I practice at church and then go out on Facebook and light people up. Or go out to, to my workplace or go, or go, get on, or go uh, read the news or whatever and get all fired up and angry and, and just spewing out hatred and hateful thoughts towards other people. No, what happens is my response to grace is it changes the way I treat the people around me. And I humanize them. So the challenge of this chapter is to elevate the people around me by my actions. This is so important because apart from this, there's no way you can have civility. You just can't. And, you know, I remember when I was a kid, my dad would tell me, when I was an opinionated kid, you know, we grew up and we have conversations around the dinner table. My dad would tell me, you know, um, Tim, what makes America unique is that you can say, you, you can disagree with someone. There's people that will disagree with you, but they will defend your right to say what you're saying. They may hate what you're saying, but they will give their lives and have given their lives so that you can say it. And when I was a kid, I didn't get that. I was like, why would you give your life so, and, and defend the, the right of somebody to say something totally stupid. Because they didn't understand human dignity. And I didn't understand what it meant to see beyond just what's coming out of a person's mouth and see the value of the human being because they exist in the image of God. And if I am valued and loved as much as, by, by God as, as much as I am, then the least I can do is transfer that and project that and do all I can to see that in someone else who's made just like me. And so, let me give you a working definition of civility. This may be a little important because mm-hmm, it's on here. Not, not the definition, but the blanks to put it. You don't have to write it, but just, you know, if you want, you can write it down because it may come up in your connection group. Um, just saying. So, civility is the art of upholding human dignity, even in the face of sharp disagreement with others. Civility is the art of, re- of maintaining, of upholding and sustaining the dignity of human beings around me, even in the face of massive, sharp disagreement. Now, here's the problem. Because you're sitting here and you're getting frustrated because you're like, Tim, I get this. I get this. I try my best to do this. I've tried to put aside my earthly wrath and anger and try to see people as God sees them and do everything I can to be that, that person. But here's the problem. I live in a world full of people who don't I live in a world full of people who hurl names at me, like hater and judgmental and narrow-minded. People who see me as the enemy. I'm not trying to be the enemy. I just, I just believe in the Bible. I just believe in certain things about the world and, and the way things ought to be. And it's like if I say those things, all of a sudden, here it comes. And it's true. It's amazing how quickly society has changed, and I think unless we, unless we want to put our heads in some kind of weird box, we have to and just forget everything or bury our heads in the sand, we have to acknowledge how rapidly culture has changed. There was a time 10 years ago. I think it was about 10 years ago when you could talk about the issue, for example, of same-sex marriage, and you could say, you know, you could give your opinion about it. You say, you know, I just... I just don't think same-sex marriage is a, is a thing that, that should be legal and recognized as, as a legitimate thing in our society. I think, not to, not to put anybody down, but I just don't think that that's the right move for our society. And you could say that and it would be no big deal. People go, okay, well, I don't believe that. And There might be a couple people that might be upset. All of a sudden now, you notice how anytime you get even close to that, if you, were to, if you were to even make that statement, you'd want to look around first. You're at the restaurant, you get on the plane. I I don't know, I'm not sure it's the best thing for our society. I have nothing against homosexual people. I just don't think, like, I think man and a woman is kind of a plan. You don't want to say it out loud. Why? Because you don't want to be overheard. Because if you're overheard by the wrong person, what's going to happen? You're going to get, you could get video. You could get labeled. You can get... Moral, moral indignation. How could you? You racist. You homophobic person. You hater. You disc- you're you as bad as the slave owner. You're as bad as the people that, that lynched African Americans. You're all these things. And you're going, no, but I, I'm not. And yet, guys, listen, I'm just being honest. I, I'm agreeing with some of you that are frustrated. The society has changed incredibly rapidly. And speech has become suppressed, and words have become commandeered. Words like love and hate are twisted. So to say love, love means I don't ever criticize your lifestyle. I don't ever offer an opinion about you. That's what it means to love. Love but is that what it means to love? Have you ever critiqued your children? <laughs> Teachers, have you ever critiqued your students? Those of you training other people in all kinds of fields, like law enforcement or any kind of person who cares about anyone to see something that might be important to love them is to say, listen, I, I, I just have to say, I think this is, I think you're wrong here. And hatred then means not what hatred is meant. Hatred means now to disagree with someone in what they're doing. Well, you're just a hater. No, 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 but you're not listening to what I'm saying. I don't have to listen to what you say. You hate me and I don't listen to haters. No, 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 but that, I, don't, I don't hate you. Yes, you do. Do you hear this? Do you hear this? It's incivility. It's incivility. Why? Because it suppresses speech. And when you suppress speech, you only have one other form of communication left, and that is violence. Please understand, I reject the title completely of hater or anything like that. Because that is a tactic used to suppress speech and therefore thought. Because if I can change the language, I can change the thought. And so when we talk about civility, guys, the reason I bring this up, because I'm trying to show you what this means. Because some of you are going, okay, this is going to be one of these messages where Tim's going to tell me, I just got to like just close my mouth and just be nice and loving. See, you're going to hear that. Loving to people. And that, A, what love now means, don't say anything that's going to hurt their feelings. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying political correctness is not at all what's in the cards here. In fact, political correctness is nothing about, is, has nothing to do with anything except keeping peace. But it doesn't even really keep the peace. All it does is isolate because I don't know what to say around you. I don't know how to speak around you. I don't know how to act around you. So, I, Because I'm not, I don't know what the right word to say. I don't know the right acronym. I don't know the right lingo. So I'm just going to say over here, I don't want to talk to you at all because I'm afraid I'm going to say something that's going to offend you. That's not, that's not engagement. You see, political correctness is about peace keeping. Civility is about peacemaking. Civility is about peacemaking. It's about saying, listen, we're different. Can can we figure out? Can can we still be friends? Can I talk to you? Can we have a, a dialogue about this? That being said, we also, I will tell you, Christian, you need to behave with respect towards people with whom you disagree, but you can also demand civility from those around you as well. You can do that. You can do that. You can say, excuse me, I, I have the right to be able to share with you my opinion as well. You can request that. Just like the article I referenced at the beginning did. You see, you to be able to say, hey, I'm a human being, and I have the right to believe and to say what I want about what is true and what is best. And the problem with some of our more liberal Christian friends, our more liberal Christian friends, not liberal politically, but liberal theologically. Not politically necessarily, but but theologically, is they'll, they've bought into the language. They say, well, the language, you know, we, we, we just want to be loving. So what they do is they throw the truth out, and they say, well, I know the Bible says this, but we don't really want to say this anymore because we don't want to make all these people mad. And so they, they've, they've caved into the language, and so that they're not any use anymore. They can't help anybody anymore because they have no message. They have nothing to say. I was recently reading the, uh, a book by the avowed atheist, Sam Harris you ever heard of Sam Harris, he wrote a book, uh, a short book called An Open Letter to Christians. I think that's what it's called, An Open Letter to Christians. Very well written. And he 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 talks about why he makes his case against Christianity. And so I'm reading this, I'm very interested, and he's a very good writer, and he's a very brilliant guy. And what I loved what he said at the beginning was he said, listen, let's be honest. He said, here's the deal. Either I'm right as an atheist, if I'm right, you as a Christian are wrong. And by the way, Christian, I also know that if you're right, I'm wrong. He goes, what I don't like are the Christians who say, oh, no, it doesn't matter. Everyone can be right. It's no big deal. He goes, no, 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 no. No. Either I'm right. If, I, if, if I'm right and there's no God, you're absolutely wrong. But if you're right, I'm absolutely wrong. Because Let's start there. And I love that. I love because I go, yeah good. You just set it up perfectly. Now we can talk. Now we can interact. Now I can read your arguments, and now I can take you seriously, because you have an opinion, and what I want to do is I want to take the things that you're saying and run them up against the things that I believe and go, is he right? I'm not afraid to do that. And we need to have a society and fight for a society where a Tim Jacobs and a Sam Harris can coexist together and talk, Now, I will tell you that I think that the beliefs that a guy like me would have make it possible for a society to exist like that. And the beliefs like Sam Harris, atheism, if you have that in a society, you end up with a society like North Korea. That's what you get when you throw out God. You have a place like North Korea. But this is the problem with safe spaces on college campuses. The same kind of thing. I love what uh, Professor Jordan Peterson of the University of Toronto says. This guy's not a Christian. And he talk, they asked about safe spaces, you know, where there's, on college campuses, there's these places where, where we, we can't, if you hear something that you disagree with, if you hear something you disagree with, and you, you're offended, you can go to a safe place where there's puppies, not stuffed puppies, real puppies, that poop and stuff, and grow into dogs, it's weird. Puppies and cookies and milk. And coloring books, and you can sit and say a safe place, and you have blankets and Play Doh and all this kind of stuff. They have places, these places at Ivy League universities. They do. They asked Jordan Peterson about it, and he goes, That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. He says, Wist, who who told you that university is supposed to be a safe place? It's supposed to be a dangerous place. It's supposed to be a place where you walk in and your beliefs are taken apart and refashion into something to make you stronger. It's a a place where you're supposed to run up against ideas that differ from yours so you can learn how to to compose an argument and think differently about something and get run into people who who you have no other way you would have met them. It's safe. You're challenged. Not intimidate and shout people down and call them names that don't mean anything. Why am I saying all this to you? What does this have to do with, because I'm saying, you know what, it goes both ways, guys. So on the one hand, I'm telling you, you treat people with human dignity, but that does not mean that you sell out your beliefs and go, well, I I just, I don't want to have any kind of conflict. No, 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 no. You need to be able to say, excuse me, I have the ability to respect you as a human being and fight for your right to live how you want to live and believe what you want to believe. Absolutely. But let me tell you what I believe about it once you've established that relationship, that's called civility. There's no violence. There's speech. And, and there's thoughts being exchanged. And that's very, very important. Now here's the, why this is so important. Because look at verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And here's the deal, guys. History is going somewhere. And someday these little squabbles that we have with people or these little offenses that we take are not going to matter. What's going to matter is someday our life is going to end. And if you haven't asked yourself the question, what happens when my life ends? And you're like, well, I'll just deal with it when I get there. That is the wrong strategy, baby. That is the wrong strategy. Because you're going to spend a very, 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 very long time in the next life. Jesus really is going to return someday. And when that happens, everything is going to be different. And you need to, be able to begin to position your mind and your thought. Have you, in other words, have you really meditated and thought about and contemplated and dealt with the reality of when Christ, who is your life, appears? You will appear with Him in glory. You will live an eternity with Jesus, and that will be your state. And the way that you treated people, and the, the things that you said, and what you stood up for, and how you understood the role that you play in this world, will make all the difference in the world at that point. Today, the world lost a great man. 34-year-old Nabil Qureshi lost his battle with stomach cancer today. Most of you don't know who he is. Nabeel Qureshi was born in the United States as a Muslim to Pakistani parents who were both devout Muslims as well. They raised him... In, an, in a very rugged intellectual environment to be a Muslim apologist so he could defend his Muslim faith against Christianity and obviously was a smart strategy living in the United States, right? And against, you know, secularism and everything else. So Qureshi grew up to be pretty, pretty robust and pretty smart and pretty articulate in his beliefs. And one day he was at Old Dominion University in Virginia as a young college student studying the Quran and studying history and all this kind of stuff. And he met a guy named David Wood. And David Wood was studying Christianity and how to defend his faith. And, the two, and rather than one guy afraid that the other guy was gonna blow him up, rather than one guy hurling epithets and rants and making all these uh, stereotypes about the other guy or this guy rejecting this guy, they decided that they both shared a common desire to figure out what was true. And so as young men, together, same members of the human race, they pursued truth together, and it's a long story, but the outcome of it was one day Nabil, after painstakingly going through his faith, realized he could not, it did not have tenability anymore. And he broke his parents' hearts. Both of them. He shattered them because he said, I can't do this anymore. And here's this young man. He went on to Biola University, got a master's degree where I attended. And he became very, very influential as a young man. Speaking all over the place. Wrote a book, several books, three of them, one of which called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. A powerful voice to speak into the Muslim and he loved his Muslim brothers and sisters and he just said, I just, wanna, I just want you to see what i found. And tragically, about a year ago, he was diagnosed with this very aggressive form of stomach cancer. Married, little baby. And today, today, he went to be with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know, I guess I'm really glad that if he was gonna pass away at such a young age, that he was met by another man who had civility, who knew he lived in a pluralistic world and didn't just throw bombs, but sat down and said, hey, can we talk? Can we run our ideas up against each other and see what happens and learn from each other? And because of that, he found grace that changed his life. So my question to you is, what is the level of, what is the level of your gratitude and your humility? Because if you have not found Jesus as your Savior, you don't really have a reason to have one or much of either one of them. You can, be, you can be grateful for your life, but grateful to whom? And for what? For what? You're gonna die soon. You have problems. You've been victimized. You've been kicked in the face by all kinds of things. With what, what, what gratitude do you have to experience? What do you have to be grateful for? What humility do you need? But when you see yourself for who you really are and you realize that even in that state you've been loved by Jesus Christ, he transforms us. And he gives us what we need to be people who can look past the screams and the anger and the violence and all this stuff and say, you know what? I want to get to the person because the person has value. Civility. In the name of Christ. It's the only way it's going to happen. Would you bow your heads with me? with your heads bowed and your eyes closed today, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond. If you're here today and you're going, you know what, I, yeah, it's, you know, I've never really considered all this stuff before, but you know, the more you you talk about this, the more I realize, yeah, I, I do need to be forgiven. If I was that guy who got that diagnosis and that happened to me and I was off this planet today, I don't really know where I would be. I'm here to tell you that if you haven't taken care of your sins, if you haven't dealt with those things, it's not really a pretty picture. It's not because God hates you. But rather, you've chosen to live a life apart from Him. And He's just going to allow you to continue to do that. But that's not what He wants. He wants us to draw you to Himself by showing you His love. So if you're here today and you just You're saying, you know what, I'd like to, I want to change my life. I want to have that humility and that gratitude. It starts by first saying, God, I confess that the problem is me. I'm tired of being a victim. I'm tired of acting like everybody owes me something. When I look in the mirror, yeah, I've, I've had some crappy things done to me, but the problem, my deep core problem is me. And I'm here to tell you, God, that's what's true. And because of that, I'm asking you, To be the bearer of my sin, to forgive me, and to make me new, and to show me what it means to be a loved child of God, to start fresh. For the rest of us who have claimed to be Christians, what is the level of your humility? Have you been raised with Christ? Have you really been raised? If so, what does that mean to you? And how is that showing up in the way that you treat the people around you? Do you treat them with the same love and grace that has been shown to you? God, thank you that today we can be confronted with your truth and that it applies to the deepest and darkest and most challenging issues we face as a culture. Thank you, God, that you are ready and willing to love us. You have loved us, but you're ready and willing to take all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our pride and all of our crud and bury it in the deepest sea. Throw it as far as the east is from the west and so that we can walk in purity and wholeness and forgiveness and newness of life with you. Thank you for transforming us. In Jesus' name, amen. <music> thanks for joining us today why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him to find out more about our church online go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time